Podcast. My name is Dash McIntyre. And my name is Adrian Pope. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about how conservatives have had a bad week in the culture wars. <laughs> you want to start the list of uh, oh, yeah. the, the bad news for them? <laughs> oh, terrible news. So this week we found out that NASCAR was actually a uh, evil a liberal agent of the deep state, and they're uh, not going to allow the Confederate flag to fly at uh, NASCAR races anymore. On top of that, they've also cut uh, a racer who complained about it on Twitter, um, and I believe another race car driver today was caught using the N-word uh, on some kind of social media, so NASCAR just immediately fired him with no cause other than his obvious racism. Uh, yeah, so don't you huge. hate it when you're, uh, when you're held, when you have to face a consequence for your uh, bigotry? And it's funny, too, because did you see the, the NASCAR tweet? The NASCAR, like the official Twitter account, uh, tweeted something to the effect of, like when the one white dude who uh, resigned over the lack of Confederate flags <laughs> yeah. um, being allowed, the, the, the Twitter for uh, NASCAR was like, we had to literally Google who you were. <laughs> yeah. Definitely kind of like a don't let the door hit you on the way out kind of response. Well, and they added, too, we'll have to find a replacement for you who consistently gets last place because <laughs> the guy right. had never won <laughs> yeah. a race. In and it's career. ironic, too, because, I mean, how much money would you have bet that NASCAR would come out like very hardcore pro Black Lives Matter ahead of like uh, the NBA or the NFL? Like, well, it's amazing. All... <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, amazing because you got to imagine a I don't think anyone would ever bet money on that circumstance occurring. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, if you, if you had bet on this like a, a year ago from today, uh, would you take You'd be a rich man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The odds would be uh, pretty, pretty amazing. For sure. Yeah, so that's interesting because it begs the question, too. Why, like, what about NASCAR makes you want to bring your Confederate flag and fly it or wear your Confederate flag belt buckles and cowboy hats and Confederate flag T-shirts? I don't, I don't know what the two have in common. Um, <laughs> Other than but, just maybe like a, the cultural kind of aesthetic yeah. of people who tend to like NASCAR, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, that's a huge win today. Uh, another thing uh, that happened today is the Supreme Court uh, decided uh, in a 6-3 decision that companies are not able anymore to uh, uh, f allow... Well, the courts uh, said that... Um, People cannot be fired on account of their sexual orientation. So if they're gay or trans, your company can't fire you, which was apparently uh, okay and legal in some jurisdictions and some states prior to the Supreme Court ruling. So uh, in light of that, too, NASCAR, I believe, tweeted today saying that they are going to actually fly instead of the Confederate flag, a pride flag. Uh, at races too, so another huge win for the uh, progressive uh, <laughs> that, side of America. Flying the uh, the pride flag is really kind of like pouring salt into the wounds of these uh, NASCAR fans. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, you want to you want to talk about the Supreme Court case a little bit because it was a it was a six three vote with uh, Chief Justice Roberts voting with the liberal judges and Gorsuch and, who was appointed yeah, and by props Trump. to Gorsuch, right? So yeah, Kavanaugh voted against it, which is which is interesting. Uh, also interesting, I think, is Clarence Thomas. So you know, Clarence Thomas is an African American. He's He's no doubt probably in his uh, you know youth and early days before he became a Supreme Court justice. I'm sure he's you know like most African Americans in this country probably subjected to some form of you know maybe not systematic racism, but I'm sure there's been something in his life they can point to as like discrimination in some way. 
Um, so it's interesting that an African-American whose own life, you know, he grew up in a time um, when black people could be refused to be hired just because they were black. And, you know, the Civil Rights Acts um, put a stop to that. So it's weird that an African-American judge is so beholden to his his conservative ideology that, we, you know, no government should be able to tell a business what to do that, uh, you know, that same business should be able to, you know, tell gay people they can't work or they need to leave or they're fired just because they're gay. Because some of the, there were, there were three different people involved with the Supreme Court case, and, and one of them, um, you know, ended up just going to a, uh, a gay pride, like, baseball league, basically, and then his employer found out and fired him that way. So that's actually one of the uh, uh, injustices that led to the Supreme Court case today. Yeah, it's pretty atrocious. To, I mean, it's like, uh, read the room, you know, has an American yeah. kind of passed that Rubicon of like, okay, gays are cool legally, you know? Um, well, it's just weird because, well, yeah, when you read like, you know, people always point out that like, yeah, there was slavery at the beginning of our, our political history. And, and, and that's a huge stain that we, we still have to like fight through today, right? And when you look at things like our entire country's history about how everybody is equal and that everyone has the same rights as everyone else, we've taken huge missteps on the way to today with, you know, far more, uh, you know, democracy, more people can vote, you know, including women, uh, African-Americans, you know, any group of people can vote today. So in 2020, you still have people saying, nope, I'm going to try to deny all of that to gay people. It's just absurd, right? Yeah, especially because the whole brouhaha with conservatives was that, like, the, their kind of main uh, hope in the Supreme Court to kind of back the, uh, to help them out in this gay culture war kind of battle was to have um, Christian bakers refuse to bake cakes for gay people. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it's just so weird that, that, that like, the idea that Christian rights uh, are being infringed upon if you can't just like judge your employees and everybody around you for not mm -hmm. being, not having, not sharing your religious beliefs of what sexual orientation or like gender identity is permissible based off of a, <laughs> you know, a really old book that's been translated like six times to get to English. And, well, and uh, they're trying to force it on the entire country. Yeah, like exactly. Them, so. Right. Uh, well, also in the news today is uh, there's reports and evidence coming in that we have a second wave of COVID coming up. Um, so unfortunately, it looks like the last three months of quarantines around the nation uh, have only done so much. And that, you know, much feared second wave is starting to rear its ugly head. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, Trump is doing his kind of his like Juneteenth edition of his, you know, fascist rallies. And uh, all of his rally goers have to sign a like a waiver, basically not holding Trump or the I think the venue or his campaign liable for coronavirus yeah. uh, like infections, you know. Uh -huh. um, so that's kind of ironic because, I mean, I'm sure Trump is going to talk about what a great job he's done with COVID and how, was, you know, Democrats were just lying about it nonstop. You know, at the same time that everyone in the room had to sign a waiver, basically alleging that, you know, COVID might be a real legitimate legal threat to their uh, kind of bottom line of campaign donations and stuff if they get sued. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there's an interesting thing, too, today that I read that uh, Putin apparently in Russian media made a kind of a, a funny comment 
saying that at least Russia, he said something along the lines of it, at least Russia doesn't have any make as many cases as America does, which is really <laughs> yeah. kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> because when you look at the uh, countries that are worst hit, it's, it's America number one, and then I believe it's Brazil number two, and then Russia. So we have these very like authoritarian wannabes, uh, at least for Trump, right, and Bolsonaro, but Putin is very much an authoritarian. These very, you know, right-wing, conservative, uh, authoritarian governments have done the worst in the world for combating this uh, disease, you know? What does that yeah. say? <laughs> and on a side note, all the countries with women leaders have kind of like outperformed the average when it comes to coronavirus. So, I mean, that's yeah, another question where it's like, what does that say <laughs> yeah, about world New affairs? Zealand, uh, isn't New Zealand this week pretty much going back to almost completely normal now? Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, that's New Zealand's kind of a unique case because it's like a thousand miles away from the nearest land, which is Australia. And that like, there's not that many people there population density isn't that crazy high and they are so, they're literally on the other side of the world to pretty much every other country but australia you know right but you know still could have been worse and uh i mean it, it wouldn't be fair to not compare that to trump right to see what a good leader could do versus a bad leader um, right. america is obviously way more intertwined with the rest of the world than new zealand is but you know we have the most amount of cases in the world so what does that say yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, if Tulsa has a kind of a spike upwards in terms of coronavirus cases. Um, right now, as you mentioned, the second wave is kind of hitting and it's uh, predominantly making a lot of news in kind of more rural conservative areas that, you know, the yeah. first major wave was kind of like big liberal cities that Trump uh, used to kind of his benefit to kind of blame Democrats for everything. To bash Democrats, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, things are not looking good on coronavirus and like a lot of commentators have been kind of mentioning on Twitter that like, we're kind of going back to normal here in America and like, it's like, we just stopped paying attention to COVID. Like we're, we're just ignoring it now. We're not changing any behavior, but we're kind of opening things up and it's like, well, let's see what happens. But there's some good news I see for the future uh, coming out of some of this is a lot of companies are working on uh, really good, fast uh, testing machines. And I was I was hearing about one where you basically can walk by it and like put your arm through it and it'll be able to detect if you have like elevated temperature, aka like a, a fever or something. Uh, so if they start putting these in big places like uh, big businesses, like places like uh, where people go, like say, you know, sports stadiums, I mean, what if in the future, like, if you have a fever or something, your work just tells you, nope, don't go in the building, just leave, because you go past a machine that, that scans you with that elevated temperature, and, you know, maybe we rethink sick leave, right, so that, you know, if you're sick, you get, you know, leave to go home in that machine. <laughs> Wouldn't that triggered. be nice? <laughs> yeah, no questions asked, and then, hey, you know, just to be safe, why don't you stay at home for three days and let us know, and, you know, then we'll scan you again when you try to come into work again. Think of how many colds and flus that would probably cut down nationwide or worldwide, you know? That's actually a very good idea. And if you could couple that with kind of a more American acceptance of using masks, like especially if you're sick and going out, like mm -hmm. if it was, you know, you go into Asia and you see that a lot on like airplanes and stuff. And uh, like if you're traveling around Asia, that they'll just walk around with masks either to protect themselves, which is good, you know, uh, yeah. and protect other people but also if you're sick to just go ahead and wear that mask because if you know you're sick you know you might as well not 
walk through a grocery store just sneezing everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think sure. it's, it'll make us a little more paranoid now when we're out in public and like someone sneezes or coughs, you know, is it like everyone giving them the, uh, like looking over their shoulders at them and kind of like, you know, walking the other way? Well, I think for sure, like if in America, I mean, people are never going to continue wearing masks after coronavirus dies down when it does. But like if you're sick and you just wear a mask and it's such a universal sign, hey, stay away from me. I mean, that begs the question of why are you out in public in the first place? But, you know, that could be a good public health measure if people did start wearing them when they're sick and ha like, let's say they had to go somewhere for whatever reason, you know? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting um, idea. What do you think about like the kind of, uh, I guess you, you could look, you know, uh, pinpoint freedom infringements, like based on like, if you're trying to go to a baseball game, and you have a slight fever, and they don't let you come in because you put your arm through that, uh, the kind of temperature measure you were just describing. Well, it's funny, because like, I can't rationalize a reason why that curtails your freedom. Uh, in a society setting, you know, what I mean, that's one of the thing those like libertarian things. It doesn't really make sense. Like your freedom to smoke is really an externality of everyone around you smelling cigarette smoke, which they know causes lung cancer, just like smoking. So it's not that it's infringing on your freedom. I mean, you are infringing other people's freedom to not be, you know, made sick by an idiot. You know what I mean? Um, like whose freedom is to buy baseball uh, tickets and go to a game and not have their whole family get sick just because like three or four people near them just didn't, you know, stay home yeah. when they should have. I mean, I don't yeah. even really, in a society setting, that's not really a freedom thing, right? Like you can't make that case for anything else. Like if you're driving 90 in a 30, there's no freedom case there. You can't sue the government for giving you a ticket and sue the police officer just because you felt like your freedom was infringed. So I think like, I mean, the whole protesters protesting the federal government or state governments in most cases, telling people to stay home, like that's not a freedom thing. It's not a First Amendment thing either. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can yeah. say on social media, whatever you want, but your presence making other people potentially more sick in a pandemic, like that's not really a First Amendment issue, especially when there's still social media and you can bitch about it all you want there. Like you don't have to do it with a gun on the steps or inside a federal building. Uh, so the whole, I don't know, that whole line of reasoning is just stupid to me. Yeah, and it's, when you compare it to other countries like Europe and stuff like that, um, there was a viral post going around on Facebook I saw it several times. So it's basically kind of mentioning this saying that Americans actually kind of like uh, subject themselves to and even welcome kind of like stunning losses of freedom in terms of like what is actually free based on the premise that we're a free country. And so like the idea that we shouldn't quarantine, we should be able to go get a haircut whenever we want, even though you're, you're kind of like taking away the freedom of other people to go out in public and not get an infectious... Uh, uh, you know, virus because you spent three days out there protesting and not following the quarantine, you know, like you kind of mm -hmm. said with that externality uh, idea of freedom, is it really, uh, are you really free to be subjected to uh, infectious diseases, you know, for any number of reasons like that? Well, yeah, that's a good point. And for anyone listening who's curious, this externality thing in, you know, the political science and economics kind of world 
and way of looking at things. An externality is what you call a third-party offense. And what that just means is that by you doing something, you're actually hurting someone else indirectly, even if you're not, say, hitting them with a baseball bat. And that's why that smoking example is so great. Like, if you smoke, if you chain smoke cigarettes all day at work, like, yeah, you might think you have the freedom to do that, but you're ruining the freedom of other people around you to clean uh, to breathe clean air, right? And to not be subjected to potential carcinogens and get lung cancer. So that externality basically says that like, sometimes freedom has to be curtailed individually to maximize freedom as a group. And that actually makes the entire group better off. And there's like a thousand different externalities on so many different topics that we talk about in our politics. And that's just one of those things that people on the right need to wrap their heads around. Like not everything is a loss of freedom, right? Speed limits are not a loss of freedom per se. You know, regulations and, and saying you can't drive drunk is not a loss of freedom in the way that you think, right? And right. certainly not the way that these protesters think their, their rights are being infringed upon. Yeah, I've heard a couple interesting stories that have really stuck with me because of the theme, but uh, kind of like uh, memoir stories from people um, who had like hardcore libertarian far right uh, dads. So like I remember this girl once this she wrote a kind of like memoir story all about how like when she was growing up, her dad who uh, was, you know, maybe obviously divorced to her mother, but her dad would have like uh, custody of her and would mm -hmm. like when she was like six years old, she remembers like her libertarian dad, you know, picking what movie they go to because he was paying. So he has the right to pick whatever movie. And that was him instilling like that libertarian lesson that it's like everybody who has the money, you know, <laughs> they're the only things that matter. So she was yeah. saying, like, she wrote about how when she was, like, six years old, her dad would take her to, like, rated R horror movies that obviously she did not want to see, but he liked them, and it was his money, so he got to pit. And he would do, like, all kinds of things like that, just impart those, like, lessons. But then you look at it, and you're like, you're just being a dick. You're just, like, selfish, and a you're kind of, dad. like, yeah, <laughs> and you're, you're being a selfish asshole, and you're kind of presenting it as this, you're, like, giving her all these lessons while you're not, like, you know... You're not spoiling your kid and then you're spoiling yourself in front of your kid just to, you know, pr you know, prove whatever libertarian ideology you want to, uh, you know, hopefully pass on to them, to your kids. Makes yeah. no sense, really. Well, and imagine an entire society living like that, right? Oh, like, yeah, right. Imagine you're a... <laughs> well, I mean... I mean, where do you take that, right? I mean, those people don't believe in government, right? But if, if you're in the government and you somehow know about this coronavirus before other people let's say and you go to the store and buy all of the um toilet paper and all the hand sanitizer well like there's a large other block of society who believes well maybe we'll have the fbi go to your house and steal your stuff because you're not you know, like a functioning member of society in any way that people can think of it <laughs> like if, you, if that was your your answer to everything you know but, yeah, there was a case of that guy who did do that. Yeah, <laughs> remember he took like $40,000 worth of hand sanitizer, but then he got like blacklisted from Amazon or whatever, so he couldn't actually sell it. And then he had to end up, I think he ended up just giving away the hand sanitizer to his community. He just had a garage filled with it to try to make a, you know, easy yeah. killing off of it. No pun intended, what? I guess. Well, it's like that funny joke. It's like there's there's two kinds of people in the world. There's kinds of people who... You know, when it rains, they jack up the price of their umbrellas like 800%. And then the other group of people in the world think that's not okay. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> but...
And that's a pretty tame example. I mean, you could use the same with like, like medicine and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Too. Like yeah. these assholes that like make, uh, you know, some diabetes medicine, uh, yeah. shoot up like 700% overnight, <laughs> same bottle, same packaging, same material, chemicals, everything, but just, you know, new ownership. <laughs> Well, here's a, another big issue of this week is the Department of Defense wanting to change the name of U.S. military bases that are named after not just Confederate generals and soldiers, but really bad ones at that. Um, a lot of, I follow on Twitter, a lot of uh, ex-retired you know, retired generals and, and top military people, and you know they pointed out that like it's funny that we named bases after these guys because they lost the war and lost really badly. So, I mean, are they really even war heroes? Uh, but when you delve deep into this issue, of course, you, you realize that a lot of these military bases were named that in the late 1800s or early 1900s simply because you had, um, um, you know, southern senators and members of Congress who demanded that they be Confederates, right? So really the only reason they're named that is because they were racist um, Congress people who demanded they be named that, right? It probably wasn't the Department of Defense's choice. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stories in the past about like, you know, Congress members telling people like, oh, that's a great program, but where in my state is that going to be, you know, stationed out of? And that's the only reason they'll vote for it, right? So, I mean, it's a very right. complicated issue, but I think it's interesting that once again, you know, the Department of Defense is far more progressive than, you know, the Republican Party as a whole, which is having a conniption fit right now about this issue. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting to think about with all of the protests, too, because a big thing right now is a lot of Confederate statues and even people like Christopher Columbus, um, mm -hmm. the kind of monuments and statues to them are being torn down. And it's interesting to see Republicans get all upset, but then juxtapose the images of, like, Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, being dragged to the streets to be dumped in, a <laughs> like, a river or something somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but then, but then, like you know, people get all up in arms. But then you think about like Baghdad when you know they're tearing down statues of Saddam Hussein, and yeah. everyone in America is cheering them on and saying, "Yay, yay!" You know, for the symbolism and everything. I think it's a great idea to throw this shit in, like to take it to the the river or the bay, take these statues and just throw them in. They, I oh, remember it'd be great. Do you remember that there is a? Go ahead. Okay, um, it would be great if they took down these statues and then if they built new ones of the people memorialized taking down the statues. That would be a cool statue. That would be nice. Yeah. Um, I think I think America does need new uh, new statue game compared to like going to Europe and stuff. It's just kind of nice to see if like at more town centers and stuff had more statues. I think uh, we could make a real jobs program, yeah. you know, <laughs> just building Artistic, statues. To, uh, yeah, yeah all the badasses in history. Jobs program. Right. Like, you know, a statue of Colin Kaepernick kneeling. Like, who would not like... Well, I mean, I know who wouldn't like it, but... <laughs> you know, give it 150 years, everyone will be treating it like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or something, you know? Like, you know, clearly someone was right, paid for it with his career and job and income and all that, you know? Well, as like a Democrat, that's like the... Or, you know, a 21st century progressive, that's like the amount of spite that some people have, right? Like... Well, if we're going to take down all these Confederate statues that these, you know, Southern racists put up in the early 1900s or 1920s just to make black people feel bad and unwelcome in, in their hometowns, you know, why right. don't we just put up new towns of all kinds of icons that they would hate? You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Obama um, <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be funny. Um, yeah. But and, and the most interesting thing about this topic is that the further we get from the Civil War, right? So the 1860s, it's 40, 100, 100, that's 160 years ago, right? So the further we get away from the Civil War, the more like absurd that an entire part of the country, i.e. the South, puts so much weight on it, right? Like the, the Confederacy only lasted you know, a four four years and some change, right? It right. wasn't that big a thing. It didn't last very long, and it got curb smashed by the U.S. Army, right? Um, so the fact that they're still obsessed with this is just weird. I mean, it was a four, a four and a half year period, 160 years ago, of people's great, great, great grandparents, right? And they were like on the terrible losing side of history. Like, why do we commemorate that at all, especially in the 21st century? Yeah, I just wrote an article about uh, and published it on the Halfway Post of why the Confederate flag has got to go. And obviously, the Confederate flag has been stupid for decades and you know a century. Um, but yeah, you're right because it literally lasted like less than five years. So what, like the lost cause of the South, you know, was all for slaves. And in my article, I was talking about you know how all of the declarations of secession specifically mm -hmm. mentioned slavery. There's uh, Alexander Stevens' um, cornerstone speech where he calls the cornerstone of the Confederacy the, uh, I believe it's something like the truth of the Negro is inferior, <laughs> you know, to white people and will always be inferior. Um, so, yeah, it's just like the South will rise again. Like that, I mean, you could say it's about heritage and stuff like that, but the her like the South will rise again. The South was only, you know, burned down by... Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman and the Union <laughs> Army because they were fighting to keep their slaves. Well, it's funny too because if you think the like if you think the South will rise again and the Confederacy and the symbols are part of your heritage, it's only because you don't even understand what that heritage is. You know what I mean? Right. So like that's a stupid idea anyway. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and it's kind of like an ethos cultural thing because I mean just imagine like the 1860s, right? Like most of the immigrants in America at that time were like pretty much German and even the Irish were like were maybe kind of just getting here. Um, no, there like, were a lot of Irish at that time. Okay. That was like the, yeah. the potato famines were like the 1840s right. and But 50s, think about right? it now in terms of like how much, you know, immigration we had from like 1880 to about 1920. And it's like all, you know, how many of these people with their Confederate flags were like their family literally came here after the Civil War. Like it's about heritage. Like you just live in a state that lost a war before your family got here <laughs> to the country. Well, yeah, that's you know? just it. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, in the South, too, especially at the time of the Civil War, most people were still kind of descended from, like, the British, right? So, like, a lot of the Germans were going to the Northeast and the Midwest. They were, like, I mean, I mean... Yeah, I actually, so a lot many... of the German, the immigrants from Germany were actually very pro-Union because part of the yeah. reason why they left Germany was because of the, the kind of civil warring going on before Germany became unified as, like, you know, the kind of modern-day Germany we know now. Well, yeah, and, and there's so many like firsthand um, documents you can read of people in the South and people in the North, right, uh, talking about how all of the immigrants were going to the Northeast, and that's why the Northeast exploded in population and industry because you get to a point where like uh, the state of Illinois and Indiana were comparable in population to the state of Virginia at the eve of the Civil War, and like 
Virginia was the first big state. At the beginning of the country's history, Virginia had the most population, if I'm not mistaken. It was either Virginia or New York, but I'm pretty sure it was Virginia. So how do you get from the most populated, rich state to, you know, Illinois? You know, people made fun of Abraham Lincoln for being like a country bumpkin because he was from Illinois. Like, that was just like, un, you know, it, it had only been begun to been turned into farmland and they still out uh, or were close to population as Virginia, which had been around since the 1600s. Uh, right. so that's a fascinating little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole issue is just so strange because you can't deny the central role of slavery with everything to do with the Confederacy. I mean, I've read so many generals tweeting and, and retired generals uh, this week tweeting about even some of the top generals in the Civil War on the Confederate side were bragging about how if they won, they were going to make a slaveocracy. Like even the people fighting it didn't even really buy into the state's rights thing other than the state's rights to have slavery. Right. And uh, would you would you say that the military is disproportionately uh, kind of ethnic minority or racial minority based on the population at large? So disproportionately, to the point that, yeah, for yeah, sure. Be, I mean, so I mean, for real, the military then literally has a kind of battle readiness kind of reason to not <laughs> allow racist symbols because the military, you know, has to be more progressive than America at large because you know for various socioeconomic reasons. Uh, one of the few like surefire paths to relative like economic stability post-military or, you know, or a career in the military is, uh, you know, you maybe get more volunteers from people of color who are discriminated against and, you know, do not like imagery such as the Confederate flag. Um, well, that's not even a new thing, right? Like in the Vietnam War, there were massive uh, and, and rightful complaints among uh, African-American communities that, there, the amount of African-American soldiers in the army dying in Vietnam was higher than the percentage of African-Americans in America as a whole. So, I mean, the fact that we've had a disproportionate amount of Americans of, uh, you know, minorities in the military is, is not a new thing. It's, it, I mean, you, I'm sure if you went back, I mean, I was reading this one article about how there have been uh, Mexican and Latino generals on the American side of every single war in our history going back to the revolution and it was all about like the um you know in history a lot of like especially early european history and american history it's really whitewashed but i mean how many african americans were there in the revolutionary war on both sides the british side and the u.s side right and apparently there were you know latino uh generals even on the american side in the revolution so i mean this is a, a crazy thing for the military and the DOD not to push back against, you know, the inherent racism in the name of a lot of the military bases. And really, it's it's funny because like the only, you know, who who is like the number one person against this policy in the DOD? Trump, right? And as the commander in yeah. chief, he can basically tell the DOD we're not changing the names. So in some ways, like that whole effort and idea just kind of died flat because he's the commander in chief. But like the only idea that the press secretary could come you know, more or less come up with was that, uh, well, all these soldiers who died in Vietnam and World War Two and World War One, like they left military bases in America of those names. And that was the last part of America they saw before they went to war and died overseas. And it's like, that is not a good reason for keeping the names of the <laughs> yeah. military bases. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, that doesn't yeah. even make sense. Like, do you think those uh, veterans and... Uh, 
you know, veterans of all our wars in the last hundred years, and certainly the people who died overseas, do you think their biggest concern, if they were alive today, or even if they are still alive, that these names of their bases that they remember so well not be changed? It's absurd. Yeah. Um, in a similar vein, another culture battle uh, lost by conservatives, the uh, band Lady Antebellum had to change their name, or didn't have to, they chose to uh, change their name to Lady A. What do you think about that? Cutting out the antebellum aspect of their name. Why that one might sting conservatives a little bit. Conservative yeah. music lovers. <laughs> well, I think any... I mean, I think any step towards progress on these race issues is good. So, yeah. I mean, all, I, all power to them. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just... This time, this these protests do seem different, and they've definitely had kind of like objective successes already, like legislatively in some cities and uh, states already. Um, you know, police practices are kind of changing a little bit, yeah. and like people are actually starting, or cops are actually starting to get arrested now for just yeah. blatantly abusing people at these protests and then killing black people. Whereas for the longest time, you know, you just Oh, we're going to put them on uh, paid leave for a moment uh, and then uh, give them back pay, but just kind of like wait till the heat's off and then everything back to normal. Things are kind of changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good thing. I hope uh, there's a more congressional action in the future, but we'll see what happens. Um, certainly, you know, I don't think this country will be well off if only liberal states and very big liberal cities in, you know, more traditionally red states you know giving a giving a shit about any of it and doing anything is going to help everyone as a whole we really need congress to really step up and lead the entire country you know ideally yeah. you'd, you'd hope the president would be in there but i don't think that's going to happen right uh, yeah but on the plus side this protest really has kind of awoken white people and it, it's sad that like it you know too it's many white people yeah it took this long and too many white people like have just been ignorant to it and kind of intentionally blind to it and just like oh i don't want to see videos of police brutality get it off my feed but now mm -hmm. it is kind of like a selfish reason but white people are paying more attention now because white people are going out and uh, protesting and then facing some of that you know mindless casual police brutality so there's more and more videos of white people being assaulted and it's kind of a, like a like a black people we told you so kind of thing uh, so, I mean, at least it is good that the perception is really changing. And, you know, in absence of any kind of like national leader helping us, like, you know, it would be nice if Obama was president. He'd have a nice speech. You know, Trump hasn't given a speech even. Uh, he hasn't really mentioned this that much because obviously he, you know, he said many things publicly already about how, like, you know, America is basically a shittle country, like our streets are carnage, you know, mm -hmm. um, we need more, we need more police brutality, things like that. It's just so tone deaf. So in the absence of some kind of like national leadership, uh, just random people you went to high school with whose Facebook feeds are now kind of resharing and reblogging, um, you know, pro Black Lives Matter things that they see, you know, that's, you got to start somewhere and, you know, from the bottom up, you know, that's a that's a good sign. Well, yeah, and it's a really good sign for our politics for the future, I hope, because 
Trump has essentially been trying to take Nixon's 1968 presidential election yeah. strategy. Yeah. I, saw, I, I saw I saw uh, an analysis of that because he was he tweeted the other day that the silent majority has never been stronger than ever. And it's like people were saying like, yeah, but when Nixon said the silent majority stuff, he wasn't the incumbent and his approval rating was like 60 percent rather than Trump's like 40 yeah. percent on a good day, you know. Mm-hmm. And Trump's been president for four years now, you know, three and a half. So well, is it really I mean, the same? <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect uh, a historical coherence coming from Trump. Uh, there was another funny thing this <laughs> yeah, right. that I laughed a lot at was that the, I don't know if it was out of laziness or they didn't want to redress it, but the Republican Party was just going to take their uh, platform, their political platform from the 2016 election and just change the date and reuse it. So when they were talking about it, people realized that in the 2016 uh, um uh, platform it actually it, it criticized the current standing president which in this case would be trump so trump's own platform criticized him as the president who's do, not doing enough on x y and z <laughs> that's yeah. funny uh, talk, about another... just a, a fa- talk about a failure of uh idealism and, ima- and political imagination that like the republican party just is not trying right now you know like all of these acting uh you know uh, positions that Trump has filled that should be uh, confirmed by the Senate. Like even yeah. though Republicans have a majority in the Senate, Trump is just not doing, and Republicans are not doing anything about their kind of responsibility to ensure that these top level, like cabinet level positions, be filled with somebody they approved of. Like Republicans really have just stopped trying. Well, and their party is kind of screwed if you think about it, because uh, if you look at it, like at least in the last 20 years, right, you have the ideology of the Republican elite and the ideology of the donor class. Right. And those typically conflate perfectly. Right. The elites are trying to get the donor money. So the ideology is the same. And, you know, what we've seen since the 1980s with Reagan is that like chief among those pieces of ideology is simply just lowering tax rates on the top marginal tax rates and the richest people in this country and they act like that alone will solve all of america's problems right and this is one of those things that you know paul krugman calls a zombie lie a lie that has no basis in you know objective reality you can prove it wrong multiple times in our own country's <laughs> history history yeah. and they, it just keeps coming back and back and back like a zombie so it's it's interesting where like then Trump comes along, right? And, and and no one can deny that Trump has taken over the Republican Party. So what's interesting to me, and this goes against something that, you know, I defended a lot of conservatives and a lot of Republican voters throughout Obama's presidency. I said, no, they're not racist. They just don't like Democrats, right? I don't think they like, or I just don't think they like Democrats. I didn't think it had anything to do with Obama being black. And then, you know, I think I was totally wrong. And I think most people would agree with me because what we've seen with the Republican Party is that, you know, the voters didn't actually care about the ideology of the elites or the donor class at all. And they actually jumped ship at the first time a openly racist person came and ran for president and they immediately jumped on board with him. So, I mean, what is the Republican Party if it turns out that they're pro-Confederacy, you know, want to take America back? You know, not to the the rich 1950s that they nostalgically think about with Eisenhower and the the growing middle class and all that. They really want to take it back to like the the racist parts of the 1950s and ignore all the other stuff that made America America, you know? 
Yeah, uh, I'm a little conflicted because granted you can't like generalize, so it's not like all conservatives, but I think certainly it's the plurality of Republican <laughs> Trump voters. Has a, doesn't that Trump have like Trump. a 90% approval rating among Republicans right now? Yeah, I guess that's true. But I mean, I, don't don't get me wrong. I'm <laughs> I'm sympathetic to your to your idea there. I'm, um, I'm not calling all Republicans racist, but. Right. I mean, you can't deny that, you know, and, and to be fair to the Republican Party, right? Trump won on a plurality. He came in and with the, you know, what did he have in the first couple of uh, primary votes? Like 22 percent, right? And he ended up winning and consolidating from there. And really, the Republican Party was stuck with him simply because there were two other many people, too many other credible choices running against each other. And Trump yeah. just barely won with a plurality. But Right, and the other thing. last guy standing was Ted Cruz. So yeah. you, could, <laughs> you can understand exactly. why Trump... <laughs> Why Trump beat Ted Cruz, right? <laughs> yeah, but among register, you know, polled registered Republican voters, he's got a ninety percent approval rating. So I mean, <laughs> it, what do you say to that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Trump really has kind of ruined everything. We've talked about it like ad nauseum about how it's tr- you know every deal he's ever tried to make in government went nowhere except just the tax cuts that Republicans wanted, which I go, I guess really uh, Tucker Carlson and some other people kind of like alt-right people have suggested this, that Republicans hate av- the average conservative voter. And like, really like even Trump himself and Jared Kushner just loathe their voters for being, you know, just who they are. And it really gets down to the idea that, like, for, you know, Republicans had the full government in 2016. They had the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And literally for all of their uh, constant, you know, complaining about abortion and guns and, uh, you know, welfare reform, all of this stuff, you know, everything, that every wedge issue, gay stuff, every wedge issue they've had for, like, decades now, they just ignored. They didn't do anything. All they did were th- those tax cuts. So, I mean, it does kind of lend credence to the idea that Republicans just do not care or respect Republican voters at all. And they just pander to them about like coal mines and fetuses and guns and stuff like that to get elected. But I mean, like for two years, they don't do anything. All they can really focus on is the tax cuts. And they get that and then just kind of bungle one response after another until Democrats take the House in a massive uh, blue wave in 2018. So well, how, uh, I don't know. I, I was reading that Howard Stern said pretty much the same thing about Trump that like, you right. Know, Howard Stern has had Trump on his show countless times over the years. Right. And that like yeah. Trump, you know, the average Republican voter is the kind of person that Trump personally does not like or care for. Uh, yeah, plus Trump probably, is just a con man. Like yeah. everything Trump does, like, hey, here's a university, you'll get rich, <laughs> and then it's like a scam, and then he gets sued. You know, he goes, mm-hmm. here's some great steaks. They're the best steaks he ever had, and they go nowhere and sell nothing. You know, airlines, NF, like a NFL competitor. <laughs> you know, like all these, well, all a, these things. He doesn't respect really his story. own customers. Here's a funny story for the listeners because when I was I was researching Trump steaks when I was making that political cartoon about it just for like funny quotes Trump said about it. But like there was a guy who was running the food side of the deal, like the food industry side of the Trump steak deal. And he said that Trump and the Trump org, when they were making the Trump steaks, like they didn't do something that every food deal basically encompasses, which said that no matter how much we sell or how little, we get X amount of money guaranteed. 
So when the Trump steaks didn't sell, unlike any other food deal that would have been made, Trump's bad food deal basically did not mean Trump got any money. And he didn't even get any guaranteed money, which is apparently a staple. Like if you're in the business, you know that's how you make a deal. You're guaranteed money, even if you don't sell shit. And Trump didn't do that. And then, you know, they estimated that Trump probably didn't even make any money from Trump stakes or something like that. So Yeah, he he ultimately didn't make any money from his casinos. (laughs) You know, that's like literally free money. (laughs) Oh, it's crazy because the only thing he made a lot of money in was real estate. And, you know. To some degree, I would argue that, yeah, if you started buying New York City property in the 1960s and 70s, you'll probably be okay in 2020s, you know, or the 2010s. Right. But more importantly than that, with all the high profile deals with, you know, foreigners, it, you know, little Trump Jr. basically admitted, yeah, most of our money comes from Russia, right? But like the only people who make those kinds of deals, like, you know, real estate has a certain price and, and some of it, like when you're selling little condos with like paper thin walls for hundreds of millions of dollars, like that's not a legitimate business deal. You're not a genius for getting someone to buy that. What you like, you are just in the illicit, you know, money laundering business. That's what it is, right? <laughs> so real estate's kind of their big thing so like you know legally most people are supposed to do due diligence and find out where the money is coming from but if you're just going to accept all these hundreds of millions of dollars for these shitty condos even if they are nice condos right there's a reason most people don't do business like that and you know it's possible that the only thing he was successful in was essentially just getting into the illicit money laundering uh real estate business world yeah, uh, I encourage all our readers to look into his uh, Baku Azerbaijan deal, <laughs> uh, which is basically like we now know with like that the business he was dealing with is like a front for the Iranian National Guard. So um, you know, let's just say what? Trump didn't do his due diligence <laughs> on who he's, who he, where the money he's making comes from. Well, it's like that um, scene in Arrested Development, right? Where they're looking at the uh, Iraqi media on CNN or whatever, and uh, they see one of their model homes in Iraq's desert. <laughs> and they yeah. realize they've been selling homes to uh, Saddam Hussein. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Committing treason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can just... Uh, literally, in ev- any aspect of Trump's life, any business career or licensing deal that he's trying to do there's just like a wealth of it's like trump's lucky there's there's so much investigation it takes to catch up to everything he's done wrong and illegal and immoral that like you know journalists and book writers and like see like whole cable news networks just don't stand a chance to like adequately hold all of these you know (laughs) strands going in different directions in the same hand you know oh for sure Another funny story for anyone listening is the uh, Trump vodka deals, which is, uh, you know, Trump is notorious for not drinking. He's pretty straight edge. Uh, you know, part of that's because he had a brother who died from problems uh, related to alcoholism. So when he introduced Trump vodka, people were asking him like, hey, like, you don't even drink, do you? And Trump basically said, you know, no, I don't drink. Never touch this stuff. So they were like, why are you selling vodka then? And then this is something that, you know, almost verbatim, he ba- Trump basically said, well, uh, it's a legal product. And if I don't sell it, someone else will. So it's like, that's your rationale for trying to make money on this. And then, of course, Trump vodka didn't really sell. Uh, he, it was like 
drastically overpriced for the quality. Uh, <laughs> so like no one was interested in buying it. It was like cheaper than the really high end stuff. And then it was like three or four times as expensive as the low end stuff. So no one bought it really. And then yeah. It under. I mean, it kind of matches everything Trump does because he just misreads the market completely. Like when it was like, what, 2007 when he started yeah. Yeah. a... Uh, uh, what like a home mortgage business company yeah <laughs> like really right did before that. the real estate crash well, or the housing crash it's funny because that's in his industry you think trump might have understood better than others what was coming in 2007 but nope turns out he was hoodwinked just as much as anyone else <laughs> right so oh, yeah well. it's kind of become i guess a cultural aspect of contemporary american conservatism to be kind of like huckstered by these con men you know George mm -hmm. W. Bush kind of got elected for being a guy you wanted to have a beer with because Al Gore was too too smart and robotic, you know, too like robotically thinking um, about like or everything he, he did. <laughs> yeah, he was like an uptight. Well, they saw him like as an uptight elitist, right? Even though he was from Tennessee, and George Bush was literally born into millions of dollars in the you know one of the premier northeastern families. You know, George H. W. Bush had a a pretty notable pedigree, and George W. Bush was his son. You know, as you know, northeastern elite as you can get almost. And but somehow, yeah. because he's a conservative, he's he's the people's man. And I mean, it's it's just crazy. I don't want to get too much into this, but like. I was reading the other day, like the uh, Democratic platform in the year 2000, and it was just talking about how, um, you know, with uh, Bill Clinton's record surpluses of like $250 billion a year, that they had estimated that they could cut down the budget. Um, you know, the deficit, uh, you mean, and the debt? Well, they cut down. Well, the, there was no budget deficit, right? In the last couple of years of uh, Bill Clinton. Yeah, but you said they would cut down the budget, right? But weren't they trying oh, to. Yeah, they would cut down the the debt uh, by right. like completely to zero by two uh, two thousand and eight or something like that, and then it accused George W. Bush and the Republicans of wanting to uh, basically just slash government revenues, slash taxes, and ruin our you know the the first budget surplus we've ever had. And they talked about everything. I mean. It was an interesting document because it was talking about how, well, we have this $250 billion uh, budget surplus. We're paying down the debt. Like, what if we use some of this government money to just pay into like a, 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 a new type of retirement fund for people, for Americans? You know what I mean? And it, it really kind of reminded me of like the, the UBI, the universal basic income or the, you know, as Andrew Yang called it, the freedom dividend. Like if America is doing so well, why don't people get um you know cut of it right and that's something al gore was basically saying is like hey america we have this awesome budget surplus we're gonna pay down our debt and once we've done that a little bit we're gonna put the money into your bank account or retirement fund which is a fascinating thing to think about um i mean you know that's something that could be done even today if we we had a better tax system that was more rational made more sense and um you know certainly worked to actually help people what do you think about that uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think with the, the kind of digitalization of our economy on big companies like Google, Facebook, Apple and Amazon that basically have monopolies just because of the level of scale, um, both like geographically and in terms of business, but also in terms of like just all of the information they've sucked up about all of us. Like at mm -hmm. a certain point, the digital economy, which is which you know, just because of the level of information that it can kind of like tap into, 
Uh, and don't forget, a lot of the information has basically been stolen from us or kind mm -hmm. of like tricked out of us, you know, for us just, you know, agreeing to any terms and conditions <laughs> on any free website or app that's on the Internet, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but at a certain point, like, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, if he's going to be a trillionaire, you know, certainly if he becomes a trillionaire at that point, can we maybe raise his taxes? Right. He's made like when COVID happened and he's now because everyone's at home and shopping online. Now he's making like billions on a weekly or monthly basis, you know, like, OK, now can we tax like give them a tax well, increase really or a tax complicated issue. That's actually a really complicated issue because he has wealth that you can't get into. Like he has an income, right? He pays himself from Amazon, but it's probably only a couple million a year, if that, maybe even like a couple hundred thousand, right? His wealth is simply his ownership in Amazon. So like you can't really tax him and take that money away from him without, um, you know, literally stealing his ownership of Amazon away from him. So that's I mean, this is a bad example because he's literally the richest person on Earth. And it's really just because he owns so much of Amazon. But you could you could certainly tax other rich people more. Well, no, you're not taking away his stocks necessarily. But I mean, like, let's say isn't that what it's about when uh, you tax someone based on like a wealth tax instead of an income tax? Well, there have been people. I mean, we don't really have a wealth tax per se. It's all based on your actual. No, I know, but that's what people. Income. That's what people are saying we should oh, yeah. have instead of income tax. There, you should find out ways to like tax capital gains efficiently and effectively, so that you don't have to. You don't get conservatives just saying let's let's raise the sales tax on all the poor people to raise. You know. Uh, oh, well, we'll raise the budget tax. a little bit. Yeah, certainly, sales tax is a very regressive form of taxation. Um, I mean, I've heard people talk about having a one-time wealth tax that you shouldn't repeat again, but I think that would be problematic because... Uh, yeah, that I mean, seems a little ludicrous well, to me. Well, these people... Yeah, I mean, well, these, well, you get into, like, like if you're rich and you're afraid you're going to have an arbitrary wealth tax, certainly if a Democrat's voted in, it's probably going to incentivize more offshore, you know, <laughs> banking. Um, I think really what you need to do... Um, there's so many other ways to address this, and, and one is just, like... Um, well, it's so complicated, right? Because if you do not have a big income, like Jeff Bezos might not actually have that much money day to day, if you think about it, right? But you can't deny the fact that he's worth almost $150 billion just because of stake is Amazon. So until he sells that, it's not actually realized, right? So you can't really tax someone on hypothetical money because all he technically has is a, a legal piece of paper stating how much ownership of the company has. And then you have an ever-changing, you know, you could argue subjective stock price of Amazon stock. And that's really where you're getting his net wealth from, even though none of it's actually realized. So in this one example of Jeff Bezos, or, you know, maybe you, you, you throw in, you know, other people like uh, uh, Bill Gates or other, you know, rich billionaires, it's really hard to get actually at their actual wealth, right? Um, well, so wouldn't, I mean, then you, wouldn't you have to tax the companies themselves, like restructure the taxation oh, on companies? Because then, like, let's say Amazon, like, you could start taxing all of these Amazon transactions, right? Well, I agree with that 100%, and I think they should. And, and that would hurt Amazon's bottom line, which would... It would inadvertently hurt Jeff Bezos' wealth, but it's not taxing it for like society good or public goods, right? Provided by the government, you're just literally 
hurting his company. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to make a distinction between what's actually happening. You're not taxing Jeff Bezos. You're you're hurting the stock price and therefore yeah. cutting down. And that's I mean, true because stock prices I mean, are relatively yeah. arbitrary anyway. Like if, if a company like like hacked into Amazon and stole their password and then held it hostage or something, you know, like some kind of like giant Amazon. Yeah. What'd you say? Their stock would go down for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, let's say just something happened. Like, overnight, people don't want to fucking buy books anymore or something. And now Amazon can't sell books, which, you know, is a giant chunk. Like, the stock would plummet. And then, like, yeah. then it becomes obvious that all that net worth of Jeff Bezos just had gets wiped out because, you know, stocks are essentially people's perception of uh, strength of, of a company yeah, rather than any kind of tangible reality. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so there's other economic things I think that would be better. And I think a lot of economic measures people want to put in place don't necessarily work the way they think they do. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, we're coming up on an hour now. Any uh, last thoughts on uh, conservatives' bad week? Any other culture battles they're kind of losing? I guess a big one is Black Lives Matter. You know, like all of the uh, streets that are painting Black Lives Matter. Um, there's a lot of, uh, kind of like anti-police, uh, kind of ideas right now and reform the police, defund the police, however you want to phrase it. But the idea that, uh, you know, maybe the police are not so innocent as conservatives <laughs> claiming all along. Well, that's the funny thing is I don't think there's a, well, I mean, there's some people in America who don't think that, that especially the cop who killed, you know, uh, a lot of the high-profile killings lately, I mean, there's probably very few people who think they were in the right, but there's still way too many people who just arbitrarily take the cop side. Um, and, I mean, that's one of the things that's really problematic in America is that even in a, you know, say you get into a, a tiff with a cop, right, and he arrests you for whatever reason, when you're in, in court fighting that, the, the cop's word... You know, really what you have is a he said, he said situation in some of these things. And the court is just overwhelmingly just going to take the cop side as, you know, as good as fact, regardless of what happens. So I think I think something that would be good. And I've, I've actually heard some police chiefs talk about this is that every cop, period, should have a body cam. Every cop car should have a microphone and camera because yeah. uh, you have bad cops. Uh, there are a lot of good cops, obviously, but there are cops who lie about what happens. They get away with stuff. And I think just you know in this situation when you're talking about someone who has a license that they say you know you can kill someone if you think you're threatened and then you have an all-powerful police union who will you know move heaven and earth literally to get you out of any legal trouble whatsoever get your pension back get you reinstated put back on the force or even move you to a new force like that's a that's a situation in america today that clearly is not working out and i think we have you know, if not 200 years of experience with that, at least, you know, in the last couple of years, it's it's undeniable that this stuff is just getting out of hand. And, and, and the sad thing is, you know, that it was happening before just fewer people had, you know, cameras all the time because now everyone's got a smartphone with a video camera. So I think there's obviously a problem they need to address. And I think that's one good yeah. solution is that everything's on video, any situation with the cops on video, period. Right. I'm very sympathetic to that idea that you like a cop can't file charges against you unless there's video proof that they captured of you committing a crime or something. However, I am sympathetic to the idea also that like, would that mean that cops no longer give out any warnings to anybody if everything is filmed? 
Well, I, I think I think having fewer people die versus people not getting warnings anymore. I think that's probably a society good. Um, right. Yeah. Of course. Cer- certain just... jurisdictions, like if you get pulled over, you have to like basically get a ticket for whatever you were pulled over for, unless like you were the cop was clearly in the wrong. But even then, like even things with a speeding ticket, let's say let's say you go like twelve over, right, and you're in court trying to fight it, saying, "Oh, I think the pedometer was broke." I think the cops' equipment was malfunctioning. There was no way, or that, like, let's say there was a sign down or something. Let's say like someone really was in the right and not speeding. I mean, what's a court gonna do? The cop said one thing, and you have some random stranger who comes in off the street saying, "I didn't do that." Uh, <laughs> so I mean, clearly, you know, you already have situations that don't involve life and death that are already probably in some situations. Uh, going against people simply because there's no video proof and it's you know whether or not the cop is being mean or he's just straight up evil like some some cops obviously are like the guy who uh killed floyd definitely was like i mean what do you do in that situation um yeah i love the idea too that like cops are against the camera thing because they're like how would you like to be filmed all the time at work and it's like you know how many people are filmed all the time while at work like on the job like yeah. restaurants with cameras everywhere, you know, Walmart. Or Amazon and, like, to make sure retail. you don't get a uh, bathroom <laughs> yeah, break. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, should we I'm... start filming cops and be like, hey, one bathroom break every four hours. What is that? Yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing is if you're a cop, it's, you know, being a cop is not a guaranteed pension and jobs program, right? Like you are serving and protecting. That's literally what your uniform says, right? So right. if you're serving and protecting... If you're serving the public interest, you're not guaranteed a pension. If you're in the military for 19 years, you don't get a pension. Like the fact that you're guaranteed some kind of, you know, strong union, uh, strong pension, strong wages, you know, like that's not what being a cop's about. And if it is, like you're in the wrong profession. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's all I got for now. Um, all right, yep, that's about an hour. Uh, it's nice to have a week, you know, where uh, kind of liberals win a lot in this era of Trump. It's kind of nice to get a lot of uh, good things kind of swinging our way. Well, I would say it's not even about you know liberal versus conservative. I would just say this is just straight up progress. Like, yeah, you're you know, right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about progressive ide- uh, progressive uh, identity politics here. It's just progress for society as a whole. Progress for yeah. America. Well, I mean, it's so weird over... that we've become so polarized and yeah. so partisan that like any progress on any issue like inherently means one side loses. <laughs> you know, loses the day. Well, when you have I mean, maybe in other countries it's not true, but when you have one country that literally says we need to go back to the 1950s, maybe that kind of is true in America. That right. one party's success is the other's like literal, you know, step backwards or even three yeah. steps backwards. Right. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to Brain Milk Podcast. I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. Enjoy. Enjoy.